I invite you to turn back to the James 5 passage we read a little earlier this morning. It's great to see such good growth in our children's ministry. Thankful all those people who work down there behind the scenes. Amen. Let me start with a quote this morning about prayer. I read this week, to be prayerless is to be faithless. Prayer is to faith what oxygen is to lungs. Show me a person who does not pray and I'll show you a person who is spiritually dead. James the Just, that's our half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the author of this epistle, was definitely a man of prayer. A first-century historian said that James prayed so much on his knees that he developed calluses on them, and thus he attained the uh, nickname Camel Knees. I'm not sure he would have thought that was a compliment or not, but nevertheless, he was a man that connected prayer and faith. And he does that in our book, and we've read it. It was the very start of this epistle in chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. He says that we ought to pray in faith, believing, not doubting, because if you doubt, you're like a double-souled person, he says. So he does it again for us. He wants to begin the book by connecting prayer and faith, and then he wants to, as a bookend or a framework, as it were, he wants to end the book in the same way. He wants us to get this connection in our mind. And I I really want you to put these things together, connect it to your prayer life today. And that is that prayer and faith go together. This is the last test. The whole book of James has been a series of what I've called of a non-fiction faith to show whether your faith is real, whether it's genuine, whether your faith is authentic. And we've looked at all kinds of tests all throughout them. But the last one is the test of faith or prayer. So let me tell you this morning, a nonfiction faith is one that is demonstrated by a prayerful dependence on God in everything. Let me say it again. A nonfiction faith is demonstrated by a prayerful dependence on God in everything. So what do, you, what do your prayers, let's get personal this morning, what do your prayers say about your faith? I'm going to ask you that throughout this message today. What do your prayers say about your faith? Someone said that if your knees are soft, your prayers or your faith is soft. James really wants to emphasize how important prayer is in this last paragraph. So in much as seven verses, he mentions the word pray or prayer seven times. Because again, he wants us to leave here this morning thinking this in our minds. Prayer and faith are inextricably bound together. But the question he really wants you to get is not generically, but personally. Is prayer and faith connected in your life? See, or is prayer more like, as you walk around the building, we have emergency uh, alarms. You can pull down the lever, and if it was emergency, if there was a fire or some sort of thing going on, you could pull that lever. And I think sometimes we think about prayer like that. Prayer is not something that describes my life. It's not something I do every day. It's not really something I do about everything in my life. But really, prayer becomes, for some at least, an emergency lever that I pull down. If there are things that happen in your life, you know, finances are out of control. Your relationship is going down the tubes. You're having a struggle in some area of your life emotionally. See, we pull the emergency lever, and then we go to God in prayer, and then we seek his face, and and we begin to have think that that's what prayer is really all about. But James says that a true Christian 
one who has a nonfiction faith, is someone who handles every situation in life with prayer. It's not just something that's an emergency lever. It's something that really characterizes our life in every way. So what does it mean to handle life with prayer? Well, James is going to give us three areas of our lives that we all face. They faced it in the first century. We face it in the 21st century and how we should connect our prayer to real life situations. And those three things are this, prayer and suffering, prayer and sickness, and prayer and sin. Those are the three areas that we're going to talk about this morning. And James wants us to connect our prayer lives to those. So let's unpack them one at a time as he presents them in the text. Verse 13, he says, is anyone among you suffering? Now, that's a rhetorical question. Underline it because this will help you understand how to read the Bible and study it for yourself. There are four rhetorical questions, and that's how you should understand how to look at this text. Verse 13 has one. Is there anyone among you suffering? Verse 14 has one. Actually, it has two, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Is anyone cheerful? Verse 13, is anyone among you sick? And then you go down to verse 19, my brothers, if anyone among you wonders from the truth. See, those three, those are four of them in a row, and that's how we're going to look at it. And so he says, the first one is this, is anyone among you suffering? And the first century people that he was writing to were, they were being economically exploited. They were poor people who were day laborers in the church. They barely squeaked a living by. We would say today they were probably making minimum wage and they really had to count every penny. But the rich people who were hiring them were exploiting them and using them and taking advantage of them. And God says judgment is coming on them. But as they waited for God to take care of their problems, they were going through suffering. And he says, if you are suffering, and we should assume that they were, that here's what you need to do, he says. You need to pray. Now, there are different kinds of suffering. Physical suffering, there is emotional suffering, financial, relational, spiritual. But here's what you need to note. And some people don't realize this as a Christian. See, some people think that once you get saved and once you have Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that there's no suffering, that there's no difficulties. That really isn't the true. In fact, what is true? When you're saved, you might have more difficulties and more suffering. And so James says, here's the problem. Christians suffer. But what should our response to our suffering be? Here's what he says. Let him pray. It's a commandment. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, let him be fearful, although we would be prone to be so if we are being exploited. He doesn't say let them be anxious, although that would probably make us worried. He doesn't say let them complain or gripe, which is, some, if we're honest, that's our responses when people are mistreating us, right? He doesn't say slander. He doesn't say get even. He doesn't say let yourself get bitter or negative. He doesn't say throw in the towel and give up. He doesn't say any of this. You know what our response would be? You know what kind of life we should have as Christians even when we're suffering? That our first response to the difficulties we face in life is this. We pray. We are a people that pray. We don't lean on our own wisdom. We don't depend on our own strength. We first turn to God. See, in the text it says let him pray. But notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, pray and this will happen. Because it's a command that has no benefits attached to it. In other words, we don't go to prayer in times of suffering and pray to God, and we only do it because we expect something in return. That God has to answer our prayer, or he has to eliminate our suffering, or he has to say, I'm going to take care of all your problems. 
No, he just says, let him pray, because prayer is not a means to an end. We don't just pray to God so that he can solve all of our problems, although he can, although he can. One author said the act of prayer is just as vital as the answer to prayer. The fact that we would go to God and pray, see, that's the important part. Now, whether God answers or not is completely up to his sovereign pleasure because, listen, God works all kinds of things in our suffering through prayer. Sometimes, hear me, sometimes when we pray in our suffering, God prays us out of our suffering. He does. He prays us out. So we pray and we ask God to deliver us and we ask God to change the circumstance. And sometimes he does that. But sometimes, you know what purpose of prayer and suffering is? Not just to get us out of a problem, but to get us through it. And so sometimes when we turn our suffering to God and we pray, God says, keep praying, keep praying because I'm not going to take it away, but I'm going to make you a different kind of person because of it, i.e., Paul, remember when 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10, Paul said, I had this thorn in the flesh. And we don't know exactly what it was, but it seemed to be pretty devastating and ongoing. And on a regular basis, he was suffering because of it. And it says he prayed to the Lord three times that the Lord would take it away from him. And every single time God said no. No to taking it away, but what? Keep praying, Paul, because my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made complete in your weakness. See, so what what should you do this morning if you're going through difficulties, if you're suffering, if you're facing mistreatment, if you're facing all kinds of trials and difficulties? Here's what James says. When you face suffering, pray. Not prayer so that you can use God or you can get him to do what you want, Pray because you say, God, I want you to make me a certain kind of person. Yes, I want you to work in my situation, but if you choose not, please work in me. So for James, prayer is for every situation. Prayer is for bad things that happen. And I watch, though. The next rhetorical question, is anyone suffering? It says, is anyone cheerful? See, those are two polar opposites. Those are extreme Extreme opposite ends of the spectrum. They're so completely different one another. He says, so when bad things happen, here's what you do, pray. And when really good things happen, you're cheerful, you're happy about it, you get encouraged, things are turning up, things are getting better. He says, and when that happens, you pray. See, you pray. And he says this, let him praise So we pray when things are bad, and we praise when things are good, and praise and prayer are really one and the same thing. Praying and praising and singing go together. He said, let him praise, let him sing a song. It says, let him, when he's suffering, pray and sing and praise the Lord. You remember what Paul and Silas, in Acts 16, they were put in jail, they had been beaten really very severely, they were put in stocks, their hands were in the air, their feet were in the air. It's a very uncomfortable situation, especially when you had been beaten as rough and, and as severely as they had been beaten. And at midnight, when they could have been fearful, anxious, griping, complaining, what do they do? It says, at midnight, they were praying and singing praises to God. See, that's what James is all about. See, that's the real test of a nonfiction faith. They were suffering, but they were singing. See, they had been pummeled, but they were praising. See, they had been beaten by God. Why is that so important, Pastor Walker? Here's why. Because when we are are tempted to forget God, 
when things are really bad. We, we get depressed, we get discouraged, we think we have to take things into our own power and our own hand, and so when we lose a job, we get so worried and we don't turn to God. Sometimes, crazy enough, he's the last person we do turn to. And so when our marriage is falling apart, we think that we can do this and we have this technique and if we would just read this book and if we would have someone help us, if someone would count, and all those things are good. But where do we turn first? We should turn to God, but often we forget to. The diagnosis is cancer. I'm in my 30s and I'm still single. And we begin to think, oh, this was never going to change. And so we forget about God. And when things are rough and really difficult, we don't turn our eyes to heaven. But watch. It's not just that we forget God when things are bad. It's easy to forget God when things are good. See? See, when we get the promotion that we believe that we deserved. When our kids are doing really, really well in school and they're not having any problems at home, we haven't been to the doctor in years and all around us people are sick and have this problem and this disease and have surgery. And for us, it's been so long since we've even had a sniffle. When our lives are smooth, sailing and smooth waters and we haven't faced a lot of the difficulty. See, we can forget God because we begin to think that we can handle life without him. And James says, oh, no, 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 you've got it wrong. See, a a Christian with a nonfiction faith realizes, I need God, which is what prayer communicates. I need God in bad times, but I also need God in good times. So if anyone is suffering, is anyone cheerful? See, here, praise God, pray to God, trust him in the bad things, treasure him in the good things to make sure that he is the center of the affections of your heart. So James says, in every situation, in every circumstance... I want you to connect your faith with prayer. Because when you do that, you connect your faith with God. So here it goes. First connection, prayer and suffering, he says. But the second one he wants us to look at is prayer and sickness. James talks about another serious situation. In every one of these three examples, he says there's a problem and prayer is the solution. Let me ask you, do you see life like that? Do you think, oh yeah, there are, there are spiritual things, people need to get saved, a spiritual problem, and so that's when I pray. But you know, secular things, you know, my job, my business, my finance, my retirement, my life, my, you know, those are things, you know, I don't really think about praying to God because those are things I got to handle. See, you know, here's what James says. Every situation in your life, prayer is the first part of the solution. Every single one of them. And in our text, Now he's going to switch his focus. The focus is going to go from personal prayer for yourself to intercessory prayer for others. And so he asked in verse 14, third rhetorical question, is anyone sick? So let me, Christians suffer and Christians get sick. The word sick is the word Greek word that means basically weak and it can be all kinds of weaknesses. But in this context, it is a physical weakness. In fact, these people are so weak and they're so sick that they can't even have the ability to pray for themselves and they have to call the elders of the church. And we would say the pastoral staff. They call for the pastoral staff to come. And the elders who represent the congregation, they go to these people's homes, seemingly, and they pray for them. 
leaders of our church need to be people of prayer. See, we need to pray individually. We need to pray as leaders. Hear me, because this is what it means to be the church, the elders of the church. It is the only use in the entire book of James. One time the word church is used. Because church and prayer go together. See, we have to be a praying church. We have to have individuals. We have to say in our auditorium today, what ought to mark the individuals and members of Faith Baptist Church is that we are praying individuals. But we're not just praying individuals. We are praying congregation. That we need to have times. We have, it's a great, can I say, advertisement. At the very beginning of every year, the first week of January, we dedicate ourselves to prayer. We have prayer week coming up. And, and listen, a lot of people, I think sometimes it seems like it, that they think, oh, that's not important. I can skip that. And I think prayer is just a private thing. And it is a private thing, but it's also a congregational thing. All you have to do is read the book of Acts and see all the way through the story about how many amazing, miraculous things took place because God's people got together and prayed. We do pray in our closet. We do pray behind doors. We pray by ourselves. But we also need to pray together. See, Faith Baptist Church, I'm convinced, will only go forward when we go forward on our knees. It's the only use of the word church. And what ought to characterize our church is that we're a praying church. So when the elders go to the home of sick people who are so sick that they can't even pray for themselves, we as a church, represented often by our leaders, pray for them. But how do we pray for sick people? Well, the Bible says that they anoint them with oil. Nine times that little phrase is used in the Bible. Eight out of the nine times, it's almost always symbolic. Symbolic of what? Symbolic of medical practice or medical treatment. Do you remember when the, Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10? And the Good Samaritan found the guy half dead on the side of the road, and he got down on his hands and knees, and what did he do for the guy? Well, he bandaged him up, and the Bible says, and he put oil on him and gave him wine. What were oil and wine? They were first century ways of using medication. Do you remember what Jesus told his disciples in Mark 16, 13? He says his disciples went out as he commissioned them, and they anointed people with oil, and the sick were healed. So Jesus' disciples healed people miraculously, and at sometimes they healed them with medicinal help. See, a nonfiction faith prays in the face of sickness and goes to the doctor. See, they go together. See, prayer and faith go together. Going to the doctor is not a lack of faith. It is God says this. We pray and we trust God, but we go to the doctor because here's what we believe. We pray first. And then go to the doctor. You know why? Because we believe that Jesus, not doctors, has the last word on our health. Here's what the scripture says. Look at the text. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Who brings healing? Doctors are fantastic. And I say it all the time when I visit people in the hospital. God, thank you for hospitalization. Thank you for doctors and nurses. Thank you for surgery and medication and all the beautiful things that God has allowed us to come up with in our world. We are blessed like you can't even believe. In fact, step outside of America and you'll find out how good it is, even though we complain about hospitalization here. How expensive it is. Go somewhere else and you'll be thankful. 
We're blessed. We're blessed. But here's what we need to say. Here's what I say. God, thank you for these things, but ultimately our hope is not in doctors unless we're talking about the great physician. Our hope is in Jesus. Listen to this verse. 2 Chronicles 16, 12 talks about King Asa toward the end of his life. Asa was diseased in his feet, and his disease was severe, yet even in his disease, Asa did not seek the Lord, but sought help from physicians. Now, is that verse telling us that we should never go to the doctor? There are some cults in our world. There's some religions who say, you lack faith. You really shouldn't be going to doctors and take surgeries and medicate. You shouldn't be doing that. That's not what the Bible teaches. The problem isn't that he went to doctors. The problem was that he went with doctors without seeking the Lord. See, that's what we do. Here's what a, non, a nonfiction faith is. We connect prayer and sickness this way. We pray to God and we go to the doctor. We pray to God and say, God, you are ultimate in our healing. You still have power to heal today. In fact, here's how the prayer of healing takes place. What is, and James says it, what is the prayer of faith? This little phrase, prayer of faith, is only used one time and one time only in all of Scripture. Some have made it out, and I, have, I, I know health and wealth people who believe in that, uh, that kind of religiosity or that kind of... I don't want to say truth because it isn't. That if you just have enough faith, they think this, well, if you just have enough faith, if your faith was enough, then you would just pray and everybody that you prayed for would be healed. And, and I can, let me tell you this, don't believe that. It's a lie. You can only pass that kind of garbage off in America. Let me tell you this, that's not what the prayer of faith is. It is not some supernatural spiritual gift that you have a better prayer life and more power than other people because your faith is greater. That's not what the point is. What has James been doing the entire epistle from chapter 1? He says, you pray, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to everyone generously and he doesn't hold back. And he says, but ask in faith. So from the very beginning of the book, he says, don't be double-souled, don't doubt you believe in your prayers that God has the power and authority to do what he said that he will do. Nowhere in Scripture, and please, you're going to need to do this later if you talk to other people. Nowhere in Scripture does God ever promise to heal everyone who is sick. Read the life of the Apostle Paul. He healed all kinds of people. All kinds of people, all places. In the last epistle, he says, pray for Tychicus, Tychicus because I left him sick in Miletus. So why in the world, Paul, who can heal people, so many people, one of his closest associates, why did he leave him there sick? Why did he heal him? Because here's the truth. Even in Paul's life, God doesn't heal every problem and sickness. Don't listen to the TV evangelists. Don't listen to the guys on the internet who say to you, if you just had enough faith, you'd have enough money. If you had enough faith, you'd have enough health. That is a lie. Because here's what a nonfiction faith is. It is a faith that says God is in sovereign and he's in control. And it's not about my faith because here's what it says. And the Lord will raise him up. See, if you believe... And you trust God, say, here's Jesus, I believe, and I've prayed this for many people. Lord, if, if, I know that you have power, and I know that you have authority, and I know that nothing's too hard for you, and you can do anything. See, I, I believe that about, and I don't doubt for a second, Lord, that you could raise him up and you could cure the cancer. I know that you could do that, but I don't know if you will. 
I know that you can, but I don't know if you will, but I believe that. And God, I believe that you still heal today. And God, in his sovereign pleasure at times, tends to do amazing things, and I would say miraculous things. He doesn't do it through guys like Benny Hinn who touch you and do all that, that, that stuff on TV. But he does it through God's people when they pray in faith, believing he can choose to do that. That's why we pray and go to the doctors. Because God uses prayer, and God uses prayer with medicine at times to deal with sicknesses in the lives of people. So it's important, right? James says this, when you are suffering, pray. When you are sick, pray. Lastly, when you sin, pray. Because prayer and sin are connected. So to be the church, ready? To be the church, individuals should be praying. He said that first. Leaders in the church should be praying for people. But in this last one, he says, everyone should be praying. Because in verses 16 through 18, look what it says. There are two one another phrases. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. So are you getting the big picture of how important prayer is? Individuals in our church should be doing it all the time about everything. Our leaders should be doing it. And the church as a whole should be doing it. So what's the picture James painting? He's painting, if you want to be the church, every person prays about everything. Sometimes by themselves and sometimes together. But what you can't miss is this. We ought to be praying. So he says, confess your sins to one another. Why, Pastor Walker? Why does he even put that in there? Because sin and sickness, listen to me, don't miss this word, they sometimes go together. Not most of the time, certainly not all the time, but hear me, sometimes, sometimes sin and sickness go together. So he says, as you're praying, and as you're going to the doctor, and as you're praying for one another, add this to what you need to do. Examine your heart, look at your life, and make sure, listen, Confess your sins to one another. It's not just saying, oh God, I'm sick. Has there something between me and you? That is fantastic, but it's more than that. He says, not only vertically, but horizontally. He says, God, it's not just should I look at my life and I'm sick and say, God, do, have I sinned against you? And there are things in my life that I need to get right with you. But also, God, are there things that I've sinned against others? And the way that I've treated others and the way I've talked behind their back or said things or God, you see, you say, God, have I done that? See, I need to look at my life and say, hey, I need to confess those things to God if I know that there's a problem. See, it's not only as a priesthood of believers, there's a doctrine in the scripture that says I can go to direct. We're not Catholic in the sense that we believe that we have to go to a priest to go to God to get our sins right with him. The Bible teaches that the priesthood of all believers is, I don't have a mediator. The only mediator between me and God is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Amen. Right? So I, I go to God and confess my sins. But watch. The Bible says that I also confess my sins to one another. And believe me, this is not a plea for indiscriminate putting out your dirty laundry for everybody to know. That's not what this is. The principle I learned in seminary was this. Confess private sins privately. Confess public sins publicly. And so if you have a public sin and everybody knows about it and it affects everybody, 
And that's how it should be taken care of. Most of them are private things that we do. But here's what the Bible says. You need to get them right because sometimes, sometimes your personal sin between you and God or you and someone else could be the cause for your sin. And so here's what he says. Put this together in your mind. Confession of your sin and prayer of faith go together when it comes to being healed. So James wants us to know how important prayer is and how powerful prayer is. It can make a difference when you're suffering. It can make a difference when you're sick. Listen, and it can make a difference in people's lives, including your own, right, when you are sinning. So he wants to show, how would you illustrate that? And so he draws up or brings up Elijah. Now in his book of James, and you've seen him already, he uses four Old Testament characters to show how faith in your life of works go together. In the beginning, in chapter 2, he said Abraham. Abraham had faith that worked. Rahab had faith that worked, right? Job, in this chapter 5, was a man who had faith that waited and waited on God, was patient. And now he brings the last Old Testament illustration of Elijah into the picture. And he wants to call up that illustration. But here's what I ask myself. Out of all the stories about Elijah in the Bible, and there are a lot, and he probably, other than anybody in the Old Testament, maybe Moses, Elijah and Elisha did so many miraculous things. I mean, he raised the widow's son from the dead. I mean, he did so many things. Why does he call on the story about starting and stopping the rain? Why is the one about Elijah put into this passage? Well, there's a lot of reasons, and the text gives us some of them. Because he wants you to know this. Ready? You might be thinking this morning, Pastor Walker, oh yeah, I pray, but God's never going to do great things in my life through prayer. I've never seen that before. See, and, and so he wants to say, Elijah was a man who was like unto us. In other words, he was just as hu human and ordinary as you and I are. And he wants to show us this morning that, see, you can have a powerful prayer life. In fact, God wants you to see amazing things happen in your prayer life, but it isn't about how extraordinary you are. It's about how extraordinary he is. See, Elijah was a man just like us, it says. So the emphasis isn't on the power of his prayers, but the life that he had that backed them up. You know what the Bible says? When you look at Elijah, he was just like you and me. He was very ordinary. In fact, he ran from Jezebel. He was afraid. At times he said, God, just take my life. I mean, he succumbed to the weaknesses of the flesh. He, just, he succumbed to fear. Listen, he was a man who was depressed at some times, and God had to encourage him. He wasn't someone who was just great and had never had a problem. That's not Elijah, and that's not you and me either right? So God says he's ordinary. But what was extraordinary about him? The Bible says the prayer of a righteous person works a lot of good things. Listen, Elijah had power in prayer because he had purity in private. Let me say it again. Elijah had power in prayer publicly because he was pure in private. He was a righteous man, not just positionally because he knew God, but practically. See, he lived his life every day in a righteous way. He obeyed God's word. And can I tell you this? 
If you want to have power in your prayer, here's where you got to start. If you want to make, say, God, I'm leaving here this morning, and my prayer life's going to be different by your grace, and here's where you start. You need to clean up your life. You need to clean up your life. Psalm 66, 18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 says this, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear dull that it cannot hear. In other words, God's not moving in your life because somehow his hand is short. In other words, he doesn't have the ability. It's not because he hasn't heard you as if somehow he's deaf. So when you look at your prayer life and say, oh, nothing really happens. I don't have anything to say in my prayer life. I don't see God really do anything. It isn't because God isn't powerful and it isn't because God is deaf. Look what Isaiah says. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you that he does not hear. See, often the lack of answers to prayer in our life is not because God cannot hear, but he will not hear. He chooses not to hear you because of the way that you're living your life. Great power does great things when God's people have great righteousness. It's the purity too often that we lack in our lives. So let me say it to you this way. God is not just considered, or, or to God, it's not just important what you pray, but who you are. Who you are. See, Elijah did a lot of great things, but God did a lot of great things in his life, not because his prayers were powerful, but his life was pure. And we can pray like Elijah, because here's what Elijah teaches us about prayer. Prayer can do anything that God can do. And one thing God will not do is listen to the prayers of someone who is unrighteous before him. So let me ask the last question. Why the miracle of the rain starting and stopping? In fact, he goes through and tells us a little bit. He prayed at one point, and the rain stopped as a judgment on Ahab and the idolatry of Israel at the time. And then he prayed, now watch, three and a half years later, he prayed a second time, and the rain came in abundance. And if you remember the story, he went to the top of the mountain, and God said, do you see anything? No. And, and he, Elijah kept going back. Seven times he went back. And on the seventh time he said, oh Lord, I, find, I see a, a little cloud. And he says, run because I'm going to send abundance of rain. So why does God put that in this text? Why did James use that illustration? Here's why. Because here's what happens in prayer. We pray and then we wait. See, didn't we talk about last week? What do you need in response to suffering? patience, long waiting. Is that where you are this morning? See, he prayed, and then three and a half years took place. Listen, not three and a half weeks, not three and a half months, three and a half years. And you know, in that whole three and a half year experience, he had all kinds of things taking place in his life. So here's what he had to do. He had to be a man of prayer and faith because he prayed this and three and a half years took place. And in between those prayers, he had to wait. He had to wait on God's timing. He had to wait on God's power. He had to wait on God's ability. 
And maybe that's where you find yourself. And maybe this morning you're discouraged and you're about to give up on prayer and you say, you know, I'm really done with that because I prayed the first time and all this time is taking place and I don't see God doing anything. I don't see prayer as powerful. How powerful could it possibly be? You know how long, Pastor Walker, I've prayed for this? You know how long I've had to deal with this problem? You know how long I've tried and asked God to do this in my life? And they're good things. They're not selfish things. See, I'm still waiting for the rain to come. I'm still waiting for the second prayer to be answered. And right now, Pastor Walker, I'm in between. Are you in between this morning? Facing those problems, that suffering, that sickness, those sins in your life? Here's what he says. When you're waiting for the rain, have faith and keep praying. Keep praying. Why? Because it's not just important for you, it may be important for others. And that's why in verses 19 and 20, he ends the text with the fourth rhetorical question, is any among you wandering from the truth? You see, there are people, and I've had it when I was a kid growing up in my home church, I've seen it here at Faith Baptist Church, and it's true in any church across this globe, and that there are people who struggle in their lives, and they stray from the faith. They wander away. In fact, the word is used in James 1.16. It means to deceive. It means that you have been tricked. You have been given false information and you bought into it. And there are times when people who get so discouraged by the suffering, by the sickness, and even at times by their own sin, that they begin to give up on the faith and they start to walk away. I don't know if you've ever seen it or experienced it. It happens. He says, and if there are any among you, and there seems to be true that there were, that there are people who are moving away. In fact, the word, the root word for stray in this verse or wander away is the word we get planet from. Because to the old, in, in ancient times, the sky used to be filled with stars or the, or the, and they seem, it's the word planets, and they seemed to be in the sky that they would move all around, that they weren't really fixed, that they would stray all over the sky. And that's where they came from, the word planet comes from. And so, so he looked at the sky and said, hey, stars move all over the place and people's lives are like that. And see, this morning, I don't even know in, the, in, in our, our church today, or you're watching, see, there might be people who are saying, listen, I'm thinking about not coming to church anymore. In fact, I would think over COVID, that's happened a lot. There are a lot of people who just don't come anymore. Maybe you're watching today, and you're watching at home, because you're still deciding on whether you're going to come back or not. And there are people who are straying. They've been deceived. They believe the lie. And see, they've turned, for one reason or another, they've turned away. And here's what James says, pray for them. Get into their lives, because here's what they need. You may be the one who brings them back. Look at the Bible says. Let him know whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. Do you know what's at stake when you get on your knees and you pray for people who haven't been in church and you notice that they're gone and you ask about them and you get involved in their life and realize they're not here and you say, hey, why aren't you here? Why aren't you here? Listen, couldn't we all do better at that? How will we get better when we put them in our prayers? We begin to think about them and love them and get in their lives because you know what? Some of those people will save their soul from death. Not just physical death, but eternal death. And here's what it says. It's a quotation of Proverbs 10, 12, and it will cover a multitude of sins. You see, there are some people today, as you leave here today, you should say this, 
who wasn't here today, not just because it's Thanksgiving weekend, but who's not here and who hasn't been here in a while? Let me get into their lives and see what's going on in their lives. Let me pray for them. Let me reach out to them. Let me encourage them that as they're straying away or they're moving away from God and the church, help me to encourage them and love them and have, to bring them back. And God says, you may make a difference in their lives for all of eternity. Now you know why he said prayer is powerful. Prayer can change everything. Everything. So let me ask you one more time. What do your prayers say about your faith? Let's pray. Father, all glory and honor and blessing belongs to you. Thank you for this series on James. And as we close it out this morning, James has been very direct to us about how important prayer is in the life of a nonfiction faith. Father, may we humble ourselves. May we honestly examine our lives, especially our lives of prayer, and answer the question, what do our prayers say about our faith? For those who might be here this morning who don't have faith, not the true faith of the Bible, Father, may you give them humility and brokenness that they might repent they might come to their senses and they might trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And for those who might be here or listening this morning and they've kind of given up on their faith, moving away from it, blaming the hypocrisy of the church or they didn't do this or that, Father, I pray that you would get a hold of their hearts and that we would reach out to them and encourage them and love them and speak truth to them and pray for them. Father, that we might see them restored we might see a radical change take place in their lives for your honor and for your glory. Lord, again, help us. Help us to connect our faith with our prayers. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would.